So, uh, we're in the middle of a series that I'm particularly enjoying, because I got to make it. And uh, it's called The Word. And what we've been doing is we're going through the whole narrative of Scripture, tracing through how it's a unified story that leads to Jesus. So one of my favorite things is the fancy word is biblical theology. Uh, just kind of getting into the nitty-gritties of what a text says and mining out all the goodness of it. And so we did an introduction two weeks ago. Last week we talked about Eden. And this week we get to talk about uh, or creation is what we talked about last week. This week we get, we get to talk about covenants. And this is a very important aspect of Scripture that is one of the most important ways in which we see Jesus in the Old Testament is through this idea of a covenant. And it's even, you could take the idea of covenant and use it as a filter to look at all of Scripture. And it would be a great one because it's just, Scripture is littered with this idea of covenant. So we're going to explore that today. Super quick recap. You can put that slide up for me, Ancap. Uh, we said this last time that we're looking at a bunch of different Old Testament characters, okay? And when those characters, like let's say Adam or today we're going to be looking at Abraham and Moses, when they are trusting God, you could say when they're trusting in his covenant, we get this really, really cool glimpse of who Jesus is and what the gospel is throughout the whole Old Testament. It's amazing. Uh, unfortunately, it's kind of the bad news. Typically, when they don't trust God, we have this unfortunate window into the proclivities of our own sinful, fleshly hearts. And I, I've found this to be a helpful way to look at Old Testament characters going, are these guys supposed to be role models? Like that's not, tip, that's not usually, they don't make great role models a lot of the time. But what they can do is they can trust God really well and then reveal the image of God in a beautiful way. We talked about this, that when someone trusts God and you crank trust, you know, all the way up, you get, you get uh, us being the image bearers of God. We're actually... We're actually kind of like idols. <laughs> we're, we're images of God, like God's, you know, put on this earth. It's a pretty cool job. And when we don't, when we mistrust, we, we leave this kind of Eden space. And if you were here over the last couple of weeks, you'll know that this purple part is, we, it looks like the kingdom of heaven that's apparently at hand, Jesus said in some way. And it's invading earth, which, you know, we inhabit. And somehow this idea of trust and love is the intersection of where heaven meets earth even here and now. So that is your recap. And we're going to look at three covenants in particular today. We're going to look at the, what, the fan, you can put that slide up for me, the three fancy words, uh, not really, the Edenic covenant, which is with Adam, the Abrahamic covenant, and the Mosaic covenant. So as we look through those, we're going to see this really neat pattern develop. So to do this, in order to understand covenant, we have to look at one word in particular that we're going to talk about a lot today, and it's, it's the word blessing, the word to bless. And now maybe you don't have a good idea of what that word means. We use it for a lot of different things now. It's, in fact, it's kind of an overused word. It's a great hashtag. No one knows what it means anymore. And blessing is actually a deeply prof profound biblical word. And so I'm going to spend just a little bit of time talking about what this means. So to do that, I just want to put up Genesis 1.26. We're going to read through this together. This is the Edenic covenant. This is the covenant that God makes to humanity in Genesis 1. Listen to this. Then God said, let, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. 
In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This is kind of an interesting idea. So for sure, we have the idea that all humans are created in the image of God. So that kind of settles the equality debate just outright. All humans are equal before God because we're all made in God's image. But it's kind of interesting that he would then go through the trouble of separating male and female in this little moment, going, oh yeah, we're all in the image of God. Oh, but also male and female, I created you. I'm like, oh, what are you doing there? He didn't, when he created the fish, it wasn't like, oh, I created the fish, male and female, I created them. (laughs) He didn't say that. There's There's something about the image of God that is captured in femininity and masculinity. There's something about those two things and then the interplay between the two of them that's required to somehow capture this image of God. This is important because masculine and feminine and the interplay between the two is this very important thread that's actually throughout all of Scripture, and it's really important in the New Testament when we think about Jesus and the church. And so even here on page one, we're already seeing the idea of God creating male and female as both equal images of God, yet somehow distinct, is already part of the first covenant. So why? Well, this is, this is interesting. So verse 28 keeps going. God blessed them. So he blessed them. So there's something about them, both male and female, that now gets blessed. Okay, and that's that word we were talking about, blessing. And this is, this is, this is the blessing. Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So we, we see even in this blessing, there's kind of some feminine flavors and some masculine flavors. These are broad strokes, obviously. But you can kind of, this idea of fruitful multiplication is this feminine idea that women are fruitful and they, they're the ones who multiply and they're the ones who bear children. It's this kind of this feminine idea. And then we have this word subdue where we get this masculine idea of subdue and rule. Now, we don't use the word subdue a lot. It's not a thing that, you know, we don't say, we don't subdue things. What does that that mean? We have to do a little bit of work, and I'm going to use the Bible Project to help us out with a little bit, so Dr. Tim Mackey will tell us what's going on here. Listen to this quote. This is how they define subdue, and I like it. It says this. Yeah, thank you. Pyramids don't build themselves, and apple orchards don't grow by themselves. They take somebody imposing will. So humans are being given this vocation to mediate God's rule. That God wants his world to be a place where life flourishes, where life multiplies. And that's going to require a lot of subduing and harnessing all the potential and resources in the dirt and the fish and the cows to make it work. And when humans do that, they are said to be in the image of the God of Israel. So that's neat, hey? Subduing is this idea that it's harnessing the goodness of the world. And it's, 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 you know what's funny? The word husband comes from the idea husbandry. And we don't, again, a word we don't use. But you know what the definition of to husband is? It's a verb. If you husband something, it means to cultivate, conserve, and employ resources fairly and judiciously. Isn't that interesting? To be a, to, to husband is to judiciously and fairly cultivate and conserve the resources that have been given to you. It's very interesting. So obviously these are broad strokes and the gender roles don't perfectly overlap as we have them every day, but you still have these masculine and feminine ideas sort of playing out here in this original blessing. So blessing is when God shares with us his ability to produce and multiply life. That's a God-given thing. He's the life giver. And he shares with us that ability to produce life. Wow. 
And so it's like, I'm gonna bless you. You can produce life too, cool. Then he also, when he blesses us, says, I want you to rule and oversee that flourishing life on my behalf. So I've actually also given you dominion over this world and you get to be in charge of it underneath my ultimate supervision. But you have a lot of authority here in this place. So that's what it means to be a blessing. And the Bible uses the word priest to talk about that. I'm gonna put one more quote up there for you, one more Bible project quote, just so we're all on the same page. This is what it means. Next one, yes. God tells these humans to work and keep the garden. These are the same words that are used later in the, in the Bible to describe what priests do in the tabernacle. Adam and Eve are like priests working and worshiping in a type of heaven on earth temple that we see here. They represent creation before God, and as God's image, they represent God to all of creation. That's what a priest does. A priest is the intermediary between God and humanity. That's a pretty important job. So when we have the idea, when God says, oh, I bless you, it's like, oh, what does that mean? It's a lot <laughs> when he says, I want to bless you. Maybe you're thinking about that differently now. It's like, ah, oh, just, I'm praying a blessing over you. You know, the tra- so translation God's saying, I want to bless you. He's saying, I want to restore you to my image and the job that came with. That's, that's what it means when he says, I want to bless you. So when you say, I'm blessed, what you're really saying is, I'm fruitful and I have subdued my world in the way that God would have intended. Like, do you, when you say, I'm blessed, you say, oh, I have fruit. Oh, I'm blessed. Oh, I've, I've cultivated this world towards the original intent of it. That's what it means to be blessed. Okay, good. We're all on the same page. So, curse. What does curse mean? Would be the opposite. And uh, curse is God handing us over to the seizing of our own blessing. So if we don't want to be blessed by him, we could be blessed by seizing it ourselves in our own autonomous sort of way. And the Bible calls that a curse. And it's the repercussions of us seizing blessing for ourselves. Now, what's interesting is the consequences mirror the blessing that we see happen after we went through this last week where we, we saw what happened with the fall, you know, when they eat the fruit. And the curse is actually also spelled out in very feminine and masculine ways because he goes to Eve and he goes to Adam. And the, 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 the femininity of the blessing has a particular curse and the masculinity of the blessing has a particular curse. So to the woman, the life-producing ability that's inherent to the blessing is now painful. Right, you see an inversion of the beauty of, uh, of, of, of like life, bringing life forward is now painful. And, and to the man, he says, oh yeah, you were supposed to be the worker, you're supposed to work and keep the land and cultivate it and bring out its goodness and its resources. The ground is now cursed. The ground is now cursed. The ground no longer works for you because you've removed yourself from my hierarchy and you're now on a side mission quest of seizing blessing for yourself. You're no longer underneath my authority. So the ground is now cursed to you and it's actually gonna work you to death. The ground is gonna work you to death now because you're not underneath my authority. So you see how uh, there's this inversion. But thankfully, God also curses the deceptive creature that whispered the lie, the serpent. He also curses him. And this is a big deal for us. Uh, this is what happens. Uh, Genesis 13, 14. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. We're not gonna go deep into this, but just briefly, you can see even in this very cryptic, but very important passage that this plan redeems the curse 
for the woman because the Messiah, this he that's coming, is actually going to come through her womb. Already we have this little taste of redemption going, hey, I know it's going to be painful, and I know there's a curse, but, but the Savior is going to come through that pain. We're going to redeem that. And to the man, we know that uh, in the masculine side, the plan redeems the man's curse of suffering and death, which is, that's what the man says. You're going to work until you die, and to the dust you shall return. This Genesis 3.14 also says that, that this, this he is going to crush the serpent's head and crush the lie and be killed by it. And we know now that ri- that, that person's going to actually rise again, meaning that, in fact, uh, for the woman, salvation's going to come through pain, and for the man, salvation's going to come through death. Like, you, you, you see how deep this is already? Like, he, God is already going, okay, we're inverting the story. And yeah, there's a curse now, but we're already, we're starting to reenact a rescue plan. So, then he recommissions them, makes clothes out of skin, signifying that blood must now be spilt for everything that happens, because justice has to be paid too. So we see this pattern developing. You could put that on. There's this pattern developing that we see here. And this is going to happen in the next two covenants we're going to go through briefly. You'll see this. You'll see a blessing. God makes a covenant to bless. Then you see mistrust. Humans mistrust God's blessing and seek it themselves. Then you see God remaining faithful to the covenant that he made. Didn't have to do that. He remains faithful. Then there's some kind of bloodshed to uphold the justice in the scenario because wrong was done. And then there's a recommissioning and God's presence and original calling remain in part, maybe not in full, but in part and in progress. So let's see how this, let's see how this old covenant story plays itself out in the Abrahamic covenant. Okay, so this is so fun. Check this out. It mirrors so well. This, this uh, God makes a covenant with Abraham to bless him. Okay, we know what that word is taking our new meaning for, now, for us now. Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abraham, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. So you see the same language. You see the blessing being the fruitful multiplication, and the reverse of this curse is going to come through this blessing of this one family, which is cool. So now the whole Bible goes, now we just care about this guy's family. You ever wonder why the Bible's about Israel? It's because of Genesis 12, where God was like, hey, Abraham, the blessing's gonna come through you for the rest of the world. So now that's all we care about is him and his descendants, which turned into Israel. That's why it's about them, Genesis 12. So uh, we don't have the he yet that's coming from Genesis 14, who's gonna crush the head, but we know that it's gonna come from this guy's line. And then this blessing is gonna somehow bless the rest of the world, these foreshadowings of Jesus. So, problem is, uh, Abraham has no kids, so, and his wife's barren, and they're already super old. So you've got God making a promise to someone who's old and barren, not a likely scenario, and God's making a covenant with him, saying, you're actually going to have tons of kids. Not only are they going to have lots of kids, but blessing is going to come through your line. So here's where our big, this is Abraham, this is his hero moment. He has a couple of really good ones. He also has some not so great ones. But the first great one is Genesis 15, 6. You could put that up. Abraham believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. So it says Abraham just trusted. That's what it said. Abraham trusted and it brought him into a place of right relationship. The word righteousness can be translated into right relationship. 
That's uh, that Hebrew way of thinking that we've been talking about. Righteousness isn't good behavior and following all the facts properly in a Hebrew mind, in a, in a, in a biblical mind. Righteousness is I'm with you and close to you and I know you and there's nothing separating us. It's a related relational truth and knowledge. It's important to know. So Abraham, our hero, trusts God, even though he's old and his wife's barren, and it's credited to him as uh, heaven and earth overlapping a little bit right there. And God goes, ah, that's my friend. He trusts me. He knows what I'm capable of. It doesn't stay that way (laughs) for very long because, again, you can see our little progression. So first we got blessing, right? That's great. Then we got mistrust. What happens? He and his wife get a little anxious. Nothing's happening. Takes a while. Takes a while after the original promise. Super annoying. Maybe you guys have found this. And so they decide to carry on Abraham's lineage through one of their servants. Whoops. Not part of the original covenant. I get that, you know, carrying on your line through your female servant is not the most relatable example for us here today. But there's an essence of what's going on here that I think we can all relate to. We really want something. God even promises it to us. Then it takes a super long time. Nothing seems to happen. So we get anxious and we give up and we grasp for it ourselves and we grasp for blessing ourselves. We grasp for blessing outside of trust. And the great thing about, the Bible calls that sin. And the great thing about sin is it's always so immediate. You guys love that about sin? It's great in that way. You don't have to wait. It's just right away. And it's the, it's, uh, you know, it's mistrust. It's not what God designed. But man, sin has some benefits. And Abraham experiences the benefits. And he's got something concrete. He's got something concrete now. Maybe you guys feel like this where people tell you that Christianity, and they, they use the word resurrection life. If you've been around Christians for a while, they say, oh, it's the resurrection life. Doesn't that sound awesome? It's like, whoa, resurrection life. Yeah, I want some of that. Until you realize that in order to experience a resurrection life, there's like a death that kind of has to happen before resurrection life. Maybe you've noticed one precedes the other. And trusting sometimes feels like death. Waiting feels like death. The relinquishing of your own self-will for someone more powerful than you feels like a death. Not grasping for blessing yourself feels like death sometimes. And yet it seems to be this plan. So Abraham says to Sarah, nope, not waiting, too scary. And we have the Abraham, you know, the Hagar and Ishmael situation. So faithfulness, God's faithful, right? Next, God's faithful. Is the covenant broken because he did this? No, we have a covenant We don't know what that word means. That word, we don't use that word barely ever. Covenants are unbreakable. Covenants are, are, or no, they're they're much more solid than maybe we think they are. And let me, I I need to walk this through with you how covenants were made in the time because I just think it's so interesting. Some of you have heard this before many times, but I think it's so cool. In that day, here's how a covenant was made, okay? Follow me because it doesn't make any sense to us. You take a bull, you take a bull, big old bull. You cut it in half. Tracking, separate it, blood and guts all over the place, two halves, okay? And then what you do is you link arms with the person you're making a covenant with. Wouldn't this be a really beautiful marriage ceremony? You, uh, you, you, you link arms with the person you're making a covenant with. Could be over land, could be over a future ally of some kind. And you, you walk through the carcass together. Translation, translation. Uh, I can do this to you if you break the covenant. That's what it means. 
I get to spill your guts if you don't keep your end of the bargain. So covenants, again, 4,000 years ago, real serious, real serious business. Abraham knows this, and God actually does a ceremony like this with Abraham with one very important distinction. God says, Abraham, go cut the bull. He's going, oh, shoot, I know what this means. Uh, Separates it, blood guts. God puts Abraham to sleep, and the presence of the Lord passes through the carcass on its own. Translation, may this be done to me, God speaking, if either of us break the covenant that we just made. Is God gonna break the covenant? No. Is Abraham? Immediately. So uh, God is saying in that very cryptic, gross passage of Genesis, I'm gonna spill my blood for this covenant. That's what he's saying. Super crazy. So you talk about faithfulness. Is God gonna be faithful to this? So in this moment, you know, Isaac is born. Okay, God's faithful. Isaac is born. Abraham did not hold up his end of the covenant. Whose blood is the most likely to be paid for justice in this moment? If Abraham and his family is a reality TV show, you're throwing popcorn at the screen right now being like, you don't deserve Isaac. That's what you're saying, right? Because that's, that's obviously the, he doesn't deserve Isaac. But there's a covenant. Genesis 22, I don't have this on the, on the screen. I'm gonna sum up Genesis 22 for you. And you know this story where Abraham, God calls, God tests Abraham big time, being like, are you gonna trust me? Are you gonna trust me with this, with this promise? And here's what happens. It's like the greatest faith test ever undergone by someone if you don't count Jesus. And there's one question here at stake is whose blood? Whose blood's gonna keep this covenant? Whose blood? And God says, effectively, I want Isaac's. That's what he says at the beginning of Genesis 22. He's like, I want, I want his. I gave him to you, I want it back. And Abraham must be thinking, yeah, but like, remember the bull thing? That was nice. That was nice how I got to fall asleep. He's gotta be a little, Abraham is completely stuck. He's completely stuck. God's made him stuck. He said, he said, Isaac's gonna be the one that all your kids come through. Future blessing, covenant, Isaac. Also, I want you to sacrifice him. Isaac's com- uh, Abraham is completely stuck. Now, I want to put Genesis 22 up there for us. As they're making their way towards this mountain, listen to what Abraham says to his servants. They, you know, they're all on their way. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there to sacrifice the boy. We will worship and then we will come back to you. It's interesting. Isaac's not coming back. Abraham knows Isaac's not coming back. Hebrews, put up Hebrews for us. This will just let the author of Hebrews tell us what happened. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a matter of speaking, he did receive, receive Isaac back from the dead. Abraham's only way out of the situation is ultimate trust in God to the point where Abraham is, I think, inventing the idea of resurrection being like, okay, 
So you're saying that you're saying God, God said this boy is gonna be from this boy, a Messiah is gonna come one day. A blessing is gonna come one day to the whole world. You also said to sacrifice him to me, you're gonna have to raise him from the dead. This is what you're gonna have to do then, I guess. To which God is going, yeah, that's actually the whole plan. Yeah, I'm super capable of doing that. Thank you for trusting me. Thank you for trusting me, God. <laughs> Thank you for trusting me, God of the universe, for whom resurrection is kind of no big deal. I can do that. And so fast forward to us, you know, God says something, he promises something to you, like I'm, I'm enough for you. Like I'm enough for you completely all, in every way. And, get, and then God says, also, you need to die to this world. To which we go, well, you're going to have to raise me from the dead then. You're going to have to resurrect me. He's like, yeah. Yeah, that's the whole plan. Is you trust me beyond what your little world can fathom. You have no idea what kind of resurrection power I'm capable of. It's amazing. So remember, when we get someone trusts, we get pictures of Jesus. You can put that picture up there for us. This is the, this is the correlation Genesis 22 is drawing. You've got wood on the back of a sun marching up Mount Moriah, which is in future Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, Isaac's a teenager and Abraham's 100 and I don't know what. Uh, there's no subduing of and tying up of the 17-year-old boy by a 100-year-old man. You've got a father and a son cooperating in faithfulness to a covenant. And then at the last moment, there's a ram in the thicket. There's a ram in the thicket. And Jesus was sacrificed on the same mountain 2,000 years later. And Abraham says this, Genesis 22. So Abraham called the place the Lord will provide. And to this day, it is said on this mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. You've got the Jewish sacrificial system that happens in Jerusalem in the big temple. Yeah, that's when this was written. You know, that's in reference to that. Someone added that later once Jerusalem was made. And then you got Jesus. So who's, what's the answer to the question? Whose blood? God's saying, mine. My blood. My blood keeps the covenant. And then Abraham's blessing is reinstated. We have a recommissioning of Abraham. You can put Genesis 22 up there. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and you have not withheld your son, your only son, John 3.16, anyone? I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities, their enemies, and through your offspring, all the nations on the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Now, what God is, God is saying, Abraham, you're willing to do for me what I am willing to do for you. Your trust is turning into love for me. Your trust is turning into a love relationship with me where you love me most. You love me more than your son, your one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. For God so loved the world that he gave. And God's trying to teach Abraham how to love him and trust him. And all of a sudden we have this unfurling of love-based relational truth that's so foreign to you and I. But God's trying to teach us how to love him. 
God's trying to teach us how to be resurrected by a loving relationship with him. That's what resurrection life is, is being in love with him, not the world. And so he says, yeah, you die to the world. Good plan. Don't love the world. Love me. I'll resurrect you. Very quickly, we're going to go through the Moses one. I don't have very much time left. I'm going to say it super quick just so that you can get this in your mind, how this keeps repeating itself. God makes a covenant with the whole people of Israel, Abraham's offspring. And he says this to them, Exodus 19.3. It's the Mosaic covenant. Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you're to say to the descendants of Jacob, of Abraham, and what you're to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, trust, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. You hear this like marriage language. It's love language. This is what people call the Sinai wedding ceremony between God and the people of Israel. It's so wedding-y. We don't have time to get into it. I wish we had a whole Moses day, but I got five minutes to talk about Moses. It's so marriage-y. It's crazy. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests, Eden priests, and a holy nation. So initially this goes well. They say yes. They say yes. All the people agree. But while Moses is still on the mountain receiving all the instructions, they get impatient, just like Abraham did. They get a little anxious, taking a while. He's up there for like 40 days or something. And they pursue blessing without God again, and they make the golden calf scenario. Again, we see, I'm going so fast, we see God's faithfulness here. Moses, it's funny, actually Moses offers his own life. It's a very, very quick little sentence in Exodus, but Moses goes, blot me out for their sins. Moses offers his own life, actually, on behalf of the Israelites. And God says, no, it's my blood, and we're gonna move forward with this sacrificial system thing. So the bloodshed happens, and they set up the tabernacle, they set up the, the systems, and you get lots of Old Testament, very hard to slog through portions of Exodus where the tabernacle's getting set up and the sacrificial system's getting set up, mostly because God's going, here's how we're gonna be together. Here's how the me paying and the foreshadowing of me paying ultimately is gonna stay alive as the way that you, we keep relating. And there's the, you know, there's the sacrifice of, of lambs, but there's this other, and I wanna draw your attention to this one little thing, Part of the sacrificial system is this idea of a scapegoat. Now, maybe we use this term all the time. Here's what a scapegoat was. A scapegoat is they get a goat, and they, the priests all put their hands on the goat, and, and what is happening there is the sins of Israel are being transferred onto this goat. And then they tie a red ribbon around the top of this goat's head, tie a red ribbon around his head, and they send it out into the wilderness to die alone. So that, that's, that's part of the system that's getting set up here in Exodus. That's, that's, that's part of what they're doing. Now, goats don't like to go and leave on their own because they know they're gonna die, right? So what they had to do is they had to find someone to make sure the goat didn't come back. But they didn't, none of the Jews wanted to touch the goat so they had to hire Gentiles, non-Jewish people, to lead the goat out of the camp and take it into the wilderness so it would die. If that's not a foreshadowing for the Jews asking Rome to crucify Jesus a couple thousand years later, 
we don't touch, we don't want to touch the goat. Let's tie a red ribbon around his head so no one comes near it. Let's push him around the city and let's have the Gentiles do it. And so we have bloodshed and the foreshadowing of, even here in this. And then we have this recommissioning where actually after if people are doing this and they're, and they're obeying the system and they're following all the Levitical commands, we have God filling the tabernacle with his presence. There's a, cloud of, there's a cloud and fire that leads them into the promised land. So let's end with this. Remember, God wants to bless you and me and, and God's made this covenant to eventually bless, to, to bless us, to be fruitful, to be priests. But we mistrust him. We go through the same cycle, you guys. God says, I want to bless you. You're actually all inherit your heirs of the promise that was in Genesis 12. They're actually Genesis 1. That's, what, that's what's happening here right now in 2022. We're still living out this blessing. But we mistrust it every day. And we choose to get blessed in our own way. But he's made a covenant. But He's made a covenant to bless. He doesn't just want to. He's made a covenant to. That he's being faithful still now to. He's still being faithful to that covenant to you and me right now to remake us into his image. And this requires a death of our self-will, an acceptance of his blood as payment, and faith in a resurrection subsequently as shown by Jesus' resurrection. And then God indwells us with his Holy Spirit. He said he tabernacles in us. Or he clothes us as royal priests again. Remember the garments of skin, Genesis? He clothes us. And blood had to be spilt, but we're clothed again with the Holy Spirit. So conclusion, where do we get hung up? Where do we get hung up? Is this the theory of mine? This is what I was thinking about as, we wrap, as, we, as, as I was trying to figure out how to conclude all this is I think we don't actually want to be remade into the image of God most days. I don't think we actually want to be blessed in the way that these covenants talk about blessing. I think we want to be made into nice people. I think we want to have Jesus help us with the really, really bad addiction that we have that's obviously hurting everybody around us. I think we want to have some friends. And then God says, no, no, no I want to bless you. And we go, yeah, 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 I know. Just help me with that. Help me with that. That would be nice. But not like, not like remade into the image of God blessing. Not like restored to fruitfulness in internal sense. Not like, not like important in a way that, that, that participates in a kingdom that will last forever. No, no, no. Not, not like blessing, blessing. I just want my bad habits gone. Uh, I want to just put a C.S. Lewis quote up here. Last thing. Uh, he just says things so well sometimes. I have his audiobooks right now where it's just like all of his like theological works in an audiobook and he just talks to me in the car. I love this guy. Clive. Clive and I hang out when we're driving. Listen now, he says this. Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this. That we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which is begotten, not made, which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons of God. We shall love the father as he does and the Holy Ghost will arise in us. 
He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I, by what I call good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. And so we see this is Adam and it's Moses and it's David and it's Abraham, but most of all, it's Jesus. And we watch him count the cost of trust that cost him his own life. And he invites us to do the same, except all that it costs us is a death of self-will and all that was gonna die anyway. And he invites us into this eternal life where he inhabits us and he makes us into his image again. It's a beautiful, compelling story. And he's made a covenant with a lot of people over a long period of time that he's continually faithful to. And he's continually faithful to you now here today saying, I'm faithful to this covenant. The blood that was spent is still good for your sin too. And being made into my image and my likeness is still accessible for you here and now. So come and die with me. So come and die. And we get to be made into little Christ's And apparently the purpose of being a Christian is nothing else. And I have to agree with C.S. Lewis in this. What else are we doing? Becoming marginally more nice people that then have to add judgmentalism in order to make sense of it all? No. No, we're being remade into the image of God. And I don't want anything less for myself and I don't want anything less for you. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up. And I'd like to pray for us. Lord, uh, thank you for your commitment to to remake us and to make us new. And Lord, I pray that if there's any ounce of religion here in this room where we're just thinking that you're out to make us cleaner and nicer people, pray that I just speak against that and say that is not what's going on here. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the courage to say, yes, no, Lord, I want to be remade. I want to be made new. I want to be made into something eternal. I want to share in the life of Christ. I want to share I want to share in the life of Christ. Lord, I admit it's so scary sometimes to admit the level of suffering and death of self-will that comes with that. But Lord, you didn't, you weren't faithful to us. To, Lord, you were faithless because you wanted us to be with us forever. And so Lord, I pray that you would, now, here and now, you'd whisper to every heart in, in the first person and say, I want to be with you forever. I want to be with you. I'm faithful to you. And the blessing that has been unfolding for a very long time was headed towards you, was headed towards us. So Father, speak in the first person to each spirit here in this room right now and say, I did it for you. I did it for you. Father, I just, may there be no doubt was meant to do. It was meant to reconcile us. It was meant to teach us what love looked like. So Father, may we respond in kind with love. May we respond with trust and obedience that leads towards a loving, trusting, intimate relationship with you. God, give us a faith, not a religion. Give us a faith in you. You're so personal.